Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Midtown. Great start to the morning already. Don't you love baptisms? So awesome. Had a good season of adding so many new partners to Midtown and several baptisms over the last month, so it's been a, been a joy. You enjoying the cold weather? Now, some of you got to go to like a different section of your closet today, which is probably really exciting, maybe for some of you more than others. Um, I know I don't know everyone yet. wanted to introduce myself. My name's Justin. I'm the executive pastor here at Midtown. Uh, we're going to continue to walk through 1 Thessalonians. So if you've been with us, we've been reading 1 Thessalonians. Uh, welcome especially all you new people, anyone who's visiting for the first time. Hope that you'd come and come up and say hello afterwards and fill out your connection card so we could get to know you. Uh, particularly want to extend a welcome to anyone here who's just like investigating their faith right now. Maybe checking out church for the first time, considering what they believe. Uh, this is a safe place to do that. I hope that you'd make some friends here who can help you along in that journey as well. Uh, we're going to do First Thessalonians this week and then next week and wrap it up. It's been a good time. I'm going to say this sarcastically, or I'm, I'm, I'm forewarning you about my sarcasm so you don't misinterpret this part here, but you know what the worst part about studying the Bible and having to teach it is? The worst part is so often... You're studying something, preparing to teach it, and then God makes you apply it in your own life. It's like you're reading a passage, and you're like, oh, no, he's going he's gonna to bring something my way. And this is, is just a passage that was assigned months ago, but it happens to be near Thanksgiving, and we're going to have to talk about this subject of Thanksgiving. It's actually directly in the Scripture. But to be real honest, this has been a difficult week for me to be thankful. Uh, me and some of our staff have been going through some things personally, as well as some dynamics within the church that have been difficult. And this week in particular, to have to teach on this passage, I'm seeing, okay, God's given this to me. It's like, here's your opportunity to practice what you're going to try to preach. I'm also aware that uh, many conversations have taken place, particularly the last few weeks, um, and many of you might find yourself in that same spot. Um, we read the prayer requests that you guys so honestly write on your cards every week, and the elders and the staff pray through every last one of them. And even by looking at those cards, I know that you might be in the same spot that I've felt this week that teach on Thanksgiving, that's, that's going to be tough right now. And so I need your help. <laughs> I need God's help. And I think we all need God's help to be able to hear this and, and learn to apply it to our lives. And so I trust God's sovereignty that back in August, this was set to be the, the passage that we'd look at this week, even as we go to Thanksgiving and even as we wrestle uh, with being thankful. Um, trust God to, to speak to us today. So why don't I pray for myself and give you a chance to pray for yourselves. Father, thanks for this uh, scripture that we get to study today. And the way that we've, uh, you give us joy when we practice it. And so we just ask for your uh, kindness, your presence to be with us in a way that we're able to receive it. That I would have clarity in the way that I communicate it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at eight commands. They're actually really simple commands. Um, the first three are in uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. There it says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Before we look at those first three commands of rejoice and pray and give thanks, um, I want to point out a few things. And I invite your participation here. It's not a trick question. When are we supposed to do these things? Look at the Scripture. Always, right? Always, continually, all circumstances. That's the heavy part of this to me, that in all times, this is supposed to be a posture of our heart, a state 
of our mind, a state of our heart that we're continually thankful, prayerful, and rejoicing in God. These things that we're going to talk about when we talk about each different one, know that they're supposed to be applied and practiced at all times in our lives. Secondly, I want to point at the interplay of them. I believe these aren't like consecutive, like do this, then this, then this. These are all accumulative, but I think they all feed off of each other. I think it wasn't by accident that Paul just scattered these three commands, that as we work on our thankfulness, that helps us pray continue. It helps us have more joy. And when we have more joy, we can be more thankful, which makes us pray continually. These things operate and feed off of each other and help each other. Third thing by way of introduction is you got to see it's real clear. This is God's will for us. As believers, this state of heart, the state of mind of rejoicing and praying and being thankful, it's God's will. And so we're not living this way, we're outside of God's will for us. And He promises us the power and the grace to do it in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first one, rejoice always. With each one of these, I want to say what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, and then how we can try to do it, all right? So what does it mean, what does it not mean to rejoice always? It does not mean that you can't feel sad. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you can't be real about the emotions that you're feeling. That does not what it means. Emotions are morally neutral. Emotions are natural. They're neutral. They're normal. We all have emotions. God has emotions. God has anger. God has sadness. God has joy. Jesus had all the same emotions. Paul has all the same emotions. The very guy that's writing this book, in fact, I told you I've been struggling some this week. One of my favorite books in the Bible is 2 Corinthians, particularly when I want to get in touch with my emotions. Because in 2 Corinthians, particularly the first four chapters, Paul's writing and he's so honest about his feelings. He talks about being in despair and having fear, having anxiety and grieving. So it's not about changing your emotions. It's something different that we're talking about here. It's about changing our attitude. Emotions are feelings, but attitudes are an approach to life approach to life that makes you see all situations in a different light because an attitude is something that's formed by your beliefs. And there's a way where if you can believe something that it can shape your attitude that no matter what comes at you, you can do what Paul says here. You can be joyful at all times. That's what it means. Take James 1, another similar passage. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. Our attitudes can be shaped by what we believe. And ultimately, the thing that can give us the most joy is to really believe that God is in control, that God is good, and that God is with us. If you can believe that the very truth that God is in control, He's sovereign and He's good, and at the same time, even in the midst of your pain, He's with you. He wants to be personally connected with you. That can radically change your attitude, which can lead to your emotions even being changed. I didn't used to believe this. In fact, there was a period of my life from about 1997 to 2000 where this was my primary struggle, was believing that God was good and believing that God was with me. I went through a period of depression uh, during those years. A lot of it was based on seeing God do good things for my friends and, and me somehow not getting it and feeling like, God, I'm, I'm following all the rules. I'm doing everything you say to do, and why are they getting the blessings and I'm not? When some of them I knew were stepping outside of God's bounds. And I began to question God's goodness and God's sovereignty and control and His nearness to me in such a way where I actually changed the way that I worshiped. I, I continued to be faithful in my church attendance, 
But when I would worship on a Sunday, there were certain songs I would sing and certain songs I wouldn't. If there was a song that was about, I need you, God, I was all in, I could sing those. But whenever there started to be a, a song about God's goodness, God's greatness, His control, I just punted. I just stayed silent because I said, I'm not going to sing what I don't really believe right now. And through the help of a number of friends, I uh, was encouraged to go to counseling, and I went to counseling for a year and a half, met weekly, almost every single week, probably like 48 out of 52 weeks with this counselor who, in the process of that, got me to a place where I could believe that God was good, even if life wasn't. You see, my problem, and that might be relatable to some of yours, was I thought that I could control what God would do in the world by the things that I did. If I did A, B, and C, then God had to do D. And if He didn't do D, then I either had to go back and rethink my steps because I was doing it wrong, or God was just bad. And it was such a joy that at the end of that year and a half that I got to a place that I could believe that God was good, that God was in control, and that He was with me, that He loved me no matter my circumstances. That took a long time to get there, but when I did, my whole attitude, my whole perspective was changed, that I could be joyful no matter my circumstances. One of the things that helped me the most was clinging to the Scriptures. The Scriptures actually used to frustrate me, the many in the, in the Bible. You take like Job's situation where he could say, well, God gives and takes away, but my heart will still praise Him. Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> How do you do that? And so I started memorizing them and clinging to them and trying to make them be real in my life. And I wanted to share what, what to me was maybe the most impactful one. It was in the book of Habakkuk. I won't go into the whole story of Habakkuk because we're actually going to study Habakkuk in January, so I don't want to give anything away here. But in the, in the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is wrestling with God, wrestling particularly with God's, God's goodness. He's saying, why are you allowing this evil nation of Babylon to come in and, and, and be more unrighteous than us, yet still judge us as a righteous nation? And he's wrestling with God's justice. But ultimately, at the end of the book, guess what? God doesn't answer his questions. <laughs> he doesn't answer them in a way that makes him reason his way out of it. What Habakkuk has to do is he has to sing his way out of it. And I love in, in chapter 3, he writes this great poem, this great song that shows the state of his heart and how it had been changed, even if God didn't answer him. Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there's no sheep or no, cat, no sheep in the pens or cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. For me, that was such an incredible verse to cling to, to say there's six things there, though this doesn't happen, 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 this doesn't happen. Yet, I'll rejoice in the Lord. The sovereign Lord, he believed that God was sovereign. And he's my strength, that he is meeting me right here. And he, even in my pain, can enable me to go on the heights. I've felt that. I've seen it. And my life has been radically different since I've believed this truth. And if you're like me, you can't just reason it in your head. You can't explain it. I can't talk you into it. But maybe you're like me and you've got to be like Habakkuk. You've got to sing your way into it. Just express your heart to God and come to believe that God is sovereign, He's in control, and He's with you, no matter your circumstances. And that's what changes your attitude. That belief changes your attitude, which can then affect your emotions. This is what it means to be joyful always. Second command is to pray continually. What does it not mean? 
It doesn't mean like literally pray every second of the day, right? Because we know we can't, we can't do that. We have stuff to do, right? You have to work. You have to sleep. You have to talk. You have to study. You have to watch the Cowboys today. There's things you just have to do. You don't have to watch the Longhorns anymore. <laughs> Another thing that it does not mean, it does not mean that you're not supposed to have scheduled times of prayer. So it doesn't mean you're just supposed to go on your day and say, oh, yeah, well, this is a command I'm supposed to pray continually so I don't have to set aside time to pray. That's not what it means. Yeah, that would be uh, contradictory to so many scriptures that tell us to seek God and spend time with Him and set time aside in our schedules to be with Him. It would go against the, the patterns that we see in Moses and David and Daniel and Jesus and the apostles. So, no, it doesn't mean we don't have set aside times of prayer, but it means something different than that. What it means is that we are to practice the presence of God. That as we walk through our days, that we can be in continual relationship with God. That when we see everything in the world, we're always seeing it through a lens of what is God doing. And we're always praying along the way. So how do we actually do that? How do we get into that rhythm where we're connecting with God throughout the day like that? There's at least three things I'd suggest. One is actually have set-aside times with God. I used to have a friend who'd say, oh, I never really spend set-aside time with God. I just pray, with, pray to God continually. And I just... I said, I don't believe it, man. <laughs> I said, I know that the people who actually set aside time with God are far better at praying continually because they've had this time with God, an encounter in a, in a part of their day that then enables them to keep God in the forefront of their mind. So the first step is to start setting aside time. So maybe you guys took Jake's, Jake's uh, recommendation this week and said, hey, let's set aside 10, 10, 10 minutes of every day just to pray for our nation. I would guarantee that those of you who did that as you walk through the rest of your day, you are more mindful of God and more prayerful and continual with God. So the first step is just making time to pray. Second is to think about just, just different rhythms in your day. We've got certain kind of things that happen in our day that we can just say, look, I'm going to make this a point of prayer. So we've got meals. You've got a time when you get up. You've got a time when you go to bed. You've got a shower. <laughs> you've got to commute. You've got to take a walk or take the kids for a walk or take the dog for a walk. Whatever it is, you can build into your life rhythms that this thing that I normally do, I'm going to make this an emphasis of prayer, even if it's just 30 seconds or a minute. This keeps God at the forefront of your heart and your mind and helps you pray continually. And the third thing is just to pray as you're going. Like, as something just pops up, make it a matter of prayer. And particularly, I think, given the context of these three commands, what this encouragement would be to be particularly the things that try to steal your joy that immediately goes straight to God in prayer with those things. As you're walking through the day and you see something, you hear something, and it causes distress, it starts to take away your joy, those are the things that you then pray. Whether you pray for yourself, God, give me peace, help me forgive this person, or whether you're praying for the actual situation to change, in those times, particularly as everything comes up that tries to steal your joy, instead present it back to God in prayer. That's how we can pray continually. The next command is give thanks in all circumstances. What does this not mean? It doesn't mean you have to give thanks for your circumstances. You don't have to thank God for the death of a loved one. You don't have to thank God for a loss of a job. You don't have to thank God for a failed test. You don't have to thank God for a broken relationship. It doesn't mean you have to thank God for the circumstances, but it says what? Thank God in all circumstances. That means in the midst of whatever you're going through that you can find a silver lining, so to speak. You can think of things in that situation, or even if it's not in that situation, the situation itself might be all bad, but there's other things that you can thank God for. 
This is the thing I've been doing all week, as I told you, we've been wrestling uh, with a few things. Every week, I've been having to take my thoughts captive, and whenever something negative comes in, I think, that's crazy, but these three good things happened this week. Let's thank God for that. And as you begin to thank God, it starts to transform your heart and your mind. You see how these three play together? What if as you're going through your day, trying to be joyful always, every time something bad happens, you either present the bad stuff to God in prayer, and at the same time, you think of things that you're thankful for, and you thank God for that, those the things there. What would that do for your heart? What would that do for your attitude? How would it change the way that you relate to God and practice His presence? That's what we're called to do here. Look how similar it is to these verses in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you see all the same commands? Rejoice. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. When you start to get anxious about something, what do you do? You pray. Give your petitions to God, but do it with thanksgiving, and then what happens? The peace of God can transform your hearts and your minds. This is what happens when we live this life. It doesn't mean our emotions are always going to come in alignment, but if we can believe what's right about God, that He's good, that He's sovereign, and that He loves you where you're at, if we can believe that, that affects our attitude, which then can change our emotions. And we can find this peace. This is what's promised here. And this is why it's God's will for you in Christ Jesus, because it's good. This is what God wants for all of us. The second set of commands in this passage is actually five, kind of back-to-back, five really quick commands. And before, uh, well, let's go ahead and read them, then I'll give a little introduction to it. It says, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to the good and reject every kind of evil. Whereas the first set of commands are really a little bit more about how you personally practice the presence of God, these are actually about how you corporately practice the presence of God. That how do we, in a setting like this, or in a setting, in a smaller setting in your, in your midtown communities, how do you practice the presence of God corporately? So what is it when we worship? Anytime that we worship, that we fellowship, that we open God's Word together, whether one person up here from the front or in a small group or one-on-one with a friend, every time that you do that, you're engaging God and you're worshiping. So how do you practice these commands in all those settings where you're opening the book of the Bible, where you're opening the Scriptures, where you're worshiping, fellowship, and praying together? I love that Midtown we have just pretty simple three communities that we talk about. We've got Sunday morning worship. This is a place where we worship together. We've got our Midtown communities where we've got 11 different communities of small groups, multi-generational, both uh, genders, part of all all these groups. And then we've got our smaller groups called huddles, in some cases even one-on-one discipleship relationships where it's same gender groups, smaller groups. But in each of these occasions, we're doing the very simple rhythms of opening God's Scripture together, sharing what's going on in our lives, confessing our sins, and praying for each other. That's what we do here on a Sunday morning as well. And in each of these occasions, we have to ask, how do we do this, and how do we follow these commands corporately in each of those occasions? Acts chapter 2 described the early church this way. It says that they uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And we do that here in a big group, and we do it throughout the week in so many smaller groups. These commands apply to those settings. And the first one is this. 
Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. So it may first be a good question to ask, like, what is the Holy Spirit and what is the Holy Spirit's role? There's much to say about the Holy Spirit. I know when I'm trying to study the Holy Spirit, I always go to John 13 through 17 as, as a starting spot. These are Jesus' last words to His disciples in the upper room where they're having this last supper and this last meal together. And in those chapters, you get Jesus explaining what the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit's role is, and who this was that was coming when Jesus left. In John 14, He says, All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit's there as an Advocate a defender, someone who will remind and who will teach. John 16, but very truly I say to you, it's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit there is an advocate again and one who comes to us actually to convict us of sin. So what is the Holy Spirit's role? The Holy Spirit's role is to teach us that even as we're proclaiming God's Word right now here, the Holy Spirit is alive and active and working in each of your hearts, bringing things to your heart, to your mind, teaching you, or He's comforting you, or He's encouraging you, or He's convicting you. This is the Spirit's role. So then what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? Some of your versions might actually say to put water on. It's the idea of Holy Spirit is referenced here as a fire. And he's saying, don't pour water on the fire. When God's at work in your heart, don't quench it. Don't try to dampen what God is doing in your midst and corporately or in our smaller group settings. Whenever we're opening God's Word and seeking Him together, the Spirit is active. That's the assumption. But we don't want to quench what He's doing. So what does it look like to actually quench the Holy Spirit? It could be when the Spirit speaks to you during worship on a Sunday and you write down what God's told you to do but you don't do it. It could be when the Spirit speaks to you during worship and God shows you something you should stop doing, but you go home and continue to do it. It could be when the Spirit prompts you to share the gospel with a friend and a family member, but you refuse to do it. It could be when the Spirit convicts you of unforgiveness in your heart, but you refuse to forgive someone. It could be that the Spirit convicts you that you need to confess your sins to someone and ask for their help in an area of your life, but you keep it hidden and don't do it. It could be when the Spirit prompts you to end a relationship that you're in with a boyfriend or girlfriend and you don't do it. It could be when the Spirit prompts you in a moment of temptation to call out to a friend, to text, to call, to ask for help, but you don't do it. It could be when the Spirit prompts a friend to come to you and correct you or give you some advice, but you don't listen. That could go on. But these are the ways that we quench what God is doing. When we disobey the Spirit, the Bible says we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit when we do this. I'll give you two examples from my life where I've obeyed and disobeyed. <clears throat> there was an instant uh, many years ago, actually during that period of depression that I described earlier where I was in this dating relationship and uh, was a bad relationship, not morally, but just not good for me. Uh, felt like we were supposed to to end it, but this girl had given me a, something, I won't go into the details, but something as a promise that she would be with me. And I met with my pastor and explained the whole situation to him, and I remember him speaking right into my heart. He just said, man, you got to break up with this girl. You got to take that thing that she gave you and mail it back to her today. And it was like, the spirit was so real. <laughs> I was like, man, you're right. God is saying that to me. And I, I did it that day. I went and I packed up everything, mailed it to her, called it all off. 
I think of another instance when uh, my wife and I were on an anniversary trip and we were going to, a, we were trying to find a video store to watch a movie at this place that we were staying. So how old it was. There was videos back then. <clears throat> this is great that this video store in this little bitty town we were in, on one half the store was the videos and the other half the store they sold cheese. Don't know why, but <laughs> that's, that's where we went. <laughs> so we picked up some cheese <laughs> and got a movie. But when we're checking out, there's just one lady working there, and she walks out, and she's, she's bald, and she seems really frail, and I was sure that she had cancer or was going through something. And I felt the Spirit prompt me like, man, ask her how she's doing. Tell her you're a believer and that you just love to pray for her. And I didn't do it. I was like, I don't know. It's my anniversary, man. Um, I mean, I, wanna, I don't want to do that, God, and I didn't do it. And I regret it to this day. I, I quenched the Spirit. That's what it means to quench the Spirit. And, and, and when we're gathering together corporately and God's stirring and He's speaking, we write something down or we confess something to someone or someone ministers to you in a way, take action. Don't quench the Spirit. The next command is actually fairly similar. It says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Prophecies, I want to get, uh, make you understand that prophecies in this text is not necessarily like foretelling. So it's not saying predicting the future or something like that. Uh, scripturally, particularly in the New Testament, you see prophecy, it's described as actually speaking God's word over each other. And if you want to go do a study on it, you could look at 1 Corinthians 14. And 1 Corinthians 14 says specifically, prophecy is for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting one another. And it's for mutual edification. And so the way that the old church used to work, and we do somewhat in this setting, we definitely do in our Midtown community settings, is that we all have a word. We all come with something. We encourage each other and we speak God's word over each other. And someone presents a problem in their life and the others in the group minister to them truth, reminding them of who God is and how God applies to their situation. This is what the prophecy was. So what he's saying, don't treat prophecies with contempt. He's saying when God's people are speaking God's word over you, don't neglect it. I want to take us to this verse in Colossians 3.16 because it shows such a great way that the early church worshiped. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and you... Oh, sorry, wrong, wrong one. Um, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how the body should work? That when we come together, we take the message of Christ, we take the teaching of Christ, and we admonish one another, we encourage each other, we speak over each other. And what he's saying here in this passage is when that's happening, don't show contempt for it. When you hear stuff up here on Sunday, don't show contempt for it. When a friend comes to you and says, I've got some advice for you, don't treat it with contempt. Contempt means disregard, disrespect, or to consider something worthless. You've probably most famously heard contempt when you think of contempt of court, right? You're in contempt of court. You might see in a law and order, right? It means that you are saying you are a better authority than this court. You are treating this court like a joke, and you're not taking it seriously. This is the command. Don't treat the Word of God. Don't treat what others speak into your lives with contempt. So what would it look like to treat God's Word with contempt? It would be not to take the Word of God seriously. It would be not to take a word of correction or rebuke from a friend seriously. It would be to not weigh heavily what you hear on a Sunday morning or what you read and study in your MCs or in a discipleship relationship. It would mean not even picking up the Bible during a given week. 
comforted me not to believe your friends when they tell you that God loves you and they, that when they try to comfort you with God's truth to not believe it. Contempt would mean to not seek the advice of your brothers and sisters and weigh heavily their advice when you're making a major life decision. Again, two examples from my life. I think one positive. Um, many years ago, I was struggling with, with forgiveness toward a particular person. Again, that same pastor I met with him was talking about it. This person had actually already asked for forgiveness, and I had extended forgiveness verbally, but not in my heart. And at this point, this person had nothing more that they could do. The past was the past. There's nothing, but somehow I wanted them to do something more to earn my forgiveness. And I met with my pastor, and he looked me right at the eye, and he said, man, you are the one that's in sin. You're the one that needs to go ask forgiveness of them. And again, same thing. I knew it to be true. The Spirit spoke to me, and I said, I've, you're right. I've got to do it. And I went straight to that person, confessed my unforgiveness toward them, and still in relationship with this person, and I had hardly any any ounce of bitterness toward them anymore upon that confession. There's a negative example, though, too, where uh, one of the things that I struggle with is really believing that God loves me. It's always been kind of a struggle for me. I believe like He loves everyone, but does He really love me? And I was ministering, a uh, guy was ministering to me, one of my mentors, and his role in my life, I think, was really to help me believe that God loved me. And he was ministering to me, and one day we were reading some Psalms together, and he was trying to explain God's love for me. And he could tell I just wasn't buying it, and I was asking the wrong questions. And I love what he said to me. He said, Justin, every time I talk about God's love, you try to burst my bubble. And I just started weeping. Like, it was, it was a, just a moment where I was like, you're right. I'm treating your words over me with contempt and not believing them. It's not that we have to be fully convinced of everything, that there's never room for doubt. In fact, the, the very next verses tell us what we're supposed to do, <laughs> that we're supposed to test everything. And as we test things, we hold on to the good and we avoid every kind of evil. Wouldn't it be great if this is the way that we minister to each other here on a Sunday morning in our one-on-one -on -one discipleship connections, in our huddles, in our midtown communities? But we're like the verse in Colossians says, that we're speaking God's word over each other and ministering to each other and showing no contempt for it, receiving it, testing it. And the things that are true, we then live it out. We don't quench the spirit. These are what the scriptures are saying to us. I want us to have a good time of worship and response because it's more important sometimes than the words. And what I want us to do is we're going to take communion like we normally do. We've got some in the back with a, the baptismal. We have some over here. I would ask that this would be just for those of you who've put your faith in Christ, that you would respond in this way. If you're still seeking or unsure about what you believe, we'd ask that this would just be for uh, those of us who have put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. One of the things that Scripture says, though, is that when we come to communion, that we have to make sure that our relationships are right with people. And so I would invite you in this time if you have to call or text someone to ask for forgiveness or if there's someone in this room that you need to talk to, to practice this. Don't quench the Spirit. Maybe the Spirit's speaking something to you now. I'd encourage you to respond as we have this time of worship. I would encourage you too, if you have a prophecy over someone, if you know something that's going on in someone's life and you would like to go speak God's Word and truth over them, during this time, go find them. Write a note to them. Text them whatever you have to do to minister God's word prophetically over each other and speaking truth into each other's lives. Journal, write, don't quench the Holy Spirit.
consider in this time of worship that God is sovereign, that He's good, and He's also with you no matter your circumstance. That's how we want to close. I engage you to really seek God, listen to Him. As the band comes forward, I'll pray, and we'll start our communion. Father, thanks that Your Spirit is alive and active, and we just invite You to speak to us, and we don't want to quench You. We want to do what You, what you speak to us. We want to think of these scriptures as well as any others that we've read this week and be not in contempt of them, but to, to believe them, to hold on to what is good. We ask, Lord, even today that we believe that you're good, that you're in control, and that you're with us when we're hurting. Teach us to pray continually, to give thanks in every circumstance. Give us brand new attitudes that apply and reflect these scriptures because it's for your glory and for our good to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.